For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, you're welcome again. Uh, it is our common practice here that we preach through books of the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, and so we are just beginning getting started in this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, today we will be looking at verses 18 through 25 uh, of chapter 1. The title of the sermon this morning is The Foolishness of the Cross. The Foolishness of the Cross. Our key words for you children are cross, wisdom, and foolishness. As we have been talking about over the last several weeks, as we've been looking at the early chapters, well, the first chapter of this book that the Apostle Paul has written to this church in Corinth, we've described to you a city uh, that was very anti-God, very immoral, kind of a Las Vegas of the Mediterranean in its day. And so many people uh, were living there at the time, many different types of people, many different types of religions were going on there. And so as we've seen, the Apostle Paul comes into this church and plants this church right in the midst of a place that probably most of us would not even dream to go. Uh, but Paul was one of these people who, who ran in where angels fear to tread. He was uh, being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God as God gave him that vision when he first got into Corinth, telling him that not to be afraid to go on preaching the gospel. I have many people in this city, and as God... And as Paul began to find out over his 18 months of, of ministry in this church, God did have many people, and he drew many people to himself, and the church was established. But as we've been looking at, especially last week, uh, this church, not too long into its existence, began to experience some major problems. Some major division was beginning to creep in. Uh, people were beginning to divide over various things. that they were. Uh, and as we looked at last week, uh, one of the main things they were being divided on is over who, who was their favorite preacher, who was their favorite teacher. And so people were beginning to divide out over this. And so as we begin to get into the day, we're going to see Paul is beginning to lay out to these people as he confronted the issue head on last week, telling them you, you shouldn't be following uh, uh, Paul or, or Peter or Apollos. Uh, you should be, uh, uh, Christ is not divided. Christ is the Lord of the church. And so if we're following Christ, then things are going the way they're supposed to. And so Paul has hit them head on uh, last week with, with, with getting them straightened out, saying this, is not, this cannot be, brothers. But then he really gets down, as a good preacher does, and a good teacher of the Bible, and a good counselor, he takes it much deeper to the heart of the issue of why this is even happening in the first place. It's because they, had, they were beginning to mix in worldly wisdom with the wisdom of God. And so one of the things that he's going to be confronting them head on which, which destroys human wisdom, was this issue of the cross of Christ. And so this morning I want to read, uh, starting, I'm going to back up and read verse 17 and then read through verse 25 to look at the text we're going to be looking at. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this rich text this morning, I feel I am completely unworthy to unpack this. And so I pray, God, that you would give us all ears to hear. Give me words to speak, Father. Bring great recall to my mind of the things you have taught me this week. And may we all come away with a full understanding of what this, the apostle is trying to teach us so that we might take these words and apply them to our lives to be more like Christ. Bless us to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we see here Paul is beginning to establish um, a dichotomy here in verse 17. He's saying, For Christ did not send me, the apostle, he did not send me just to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so we see here something that, what, what is it that can empty the cross of its power? What is it that we can do to empty Christ's cross of what it was intended to do? And that is bringing it with words of eloquent wisdom. And so we see, the first thing we see here in this text this morning, the first point I'm going to be going through is the response to the message of Christ crucified divides all men of all time everywhere into two opposing camps. Because he says there that he did not come to, uh, to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Then he says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross, that is superimposed and in, in, in against these words of eloquent wisdom. And so the message is the same, Christ crucified. But these, in these two words, actually the word words of eloquent wisdom and word of the cross is actually the same Greek word. It's the word logos. Uh, it's used in many places in the New Testament. Talk about the word of God, but it's used in other contexts as well. And so just looking at this word, we can't exactly tell, okay, what's the difference here? But there's such a great difference. The difference is as vast as heaven and hell. When you're talking about the words of eloquent wisdom, you're talking about adding other things into the message of Christ crucified. We, this has been going on since time began, and especially in this day and in this, in this setting that Paul is in in Corinth, uh, many things are being proposed uh, by mankind and by philosophers to determine Okay, what do we make? How do we make sense of this life? How do we make sense of what's going on around us? How do I make sense of my heart? All of these things are being debated in this setting. And Paul is saying here, okay, that's one thing. Those things are happening. People are talking about over here. But that's not what I'm interested in here. I'm interested in the word of the cross. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to preach that. I can't do both. I can't blend them together and come up with some kind of soup of teaching here that everybody likes. They don't go together. They're as opposed as heaven and hell. And so I must preach the word of the cross. And so he's saying here, that word is what divides people. It does not make friends. It divides people. He's saying with these two opposing camps that it divides, it's folly to those who are perishing. That word folly 
uh, is actually the, it's the Greek word moriah. It's where we get the English word moron. So it's moronic. This, this, this idea of, of the word of the cross to the people who are perishing, it's moronic. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you see two different things happening with two groups of people. The people who, are, who, who think that this message of the cross is folly, these people who love these words of eloquent wisdom, they see it as foolishness, as moronic, and they are perishing in the midst of it. This Greek And, and the word there, perishing, as well as the word translated who are being saved is in the present tense. So this is a current state of being that both of these camps are in. One is perishing, one is being saved. And what is the difference? The word of the cross. How do they, what do they do with this word of Christ crucified, the word of the cross? And so we see there uh, that these two people are divided over that. People in our day, and we can see this all the time, take no offense when you talk about God. They really don't. For the most part, people will not take offense when you just throw the name God out there. But what do they do take offense out at when you throw the name Christ out there? And especially when you begin to narrow and, and focus in on the ministry of Christ and what Christ came to do, and that is to die on a cross for our sins, then, oh no, it's on. People are offended. They cannot deal with that type of, that type of talk. And so... We see that happening around us. We, it's been around for all times, but we especially see it in our day, in this postmodern world that we live in, that you can talk about God all day long, but do not bring up the name of Christ, and especially do not bring up the demands and the things that He did for us on that cross. And so these people are perishing because of that. They're in a current state of perishing. And, and so we've seen people many times, probably many of you have seen loved ones who who have died from cancer or whatever, and, and, they, and they, you, you see those last months or, or year that they're suffering through that disease and, and how sad it is and how painful that is. Well, that's kind of what he's talking about here. We, the people who see this message of the cross as foolishness, they're currently, as we speak, in a state of perishing. They're dying in front of us because of this message, because of the cross, because he says they're perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And remember back in the first couple of uh, verses that we looked at, he, he talked about uh, those of us who have called to be saints, you know, those of us who, are, who have been saved, who have been sanctified. We talked about that that was the, one, the, the very beginning of the sanctification process when God the Father sets us apart from the profane to the holy. And so we are, in that sense, we can never become more sanctified than that. We are already set apart. We are made holy in God's sight. But here, when he's talking about here, uh, but to us, us, the people of God, who are being saved, here we see that progressive side of sanctification, that day-to-day growth, that great day-to-day maturing factor that happens to Christians. We see that here, talking about it. And so what is it that's causing that? The power of God through the word of the cross, through the message of this of Christ's cross. And we see the Apostle Paul teaching the Romans at the very beginning of his letter to them, uh, much as he's trying to establish this with the Corinthians as he's beginning to talk to them. In Romans, he says in one sixteen, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The world has plenty of uh, multifaceted views of how we can get to heaven. Some people think you just, you're born to go to heaven. All you got to do is die. And, and there's a light that shines and you're there. 
And so we, we all know that that's going on. But Paul here is saying that no, uh, the, the message of salvation, uh, the message of, of us being made right with God, of us growing to be more Christ-like, the power that brings that about is not just something within ourselves. It is the power of God Himself through the message of Christ crucified. And so we see here that uh, very clearly that there are two groups of people in the world as we speak. There are only two groups of people. We talked about this when we were in 1 John where there were two kingdoms, same, just a different way of looking at it, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. Now there are two groups of people, those who are perishing and those who are currently being saved. There are no others. There, are no, there is nobody halfway in between. There you are either in a state of perishing or you're either in a state of being saved. And so Paul is setting forth here that what determines that, what is called, what, what brings that about, it is the message of the cross. And remember, what was going on in this church? They were divided, right? Great division was propping, propping in, and we're going to be looking at many other things that they were divided over as we go forward into the book. But, but there was great division here. And so what causes division? You ever, does humility cause division? No. No, when two, when two humble people are, are, are there working together, they're not going to be divided. They're going to be trying to outserve one another, right? And so worldly wisdom and fleshiness and carnality is what brings division. And so Paul is bringing here to say, okay, well, let's, Corinthians, let's get down to the heart of it. If what is it that's causing this worldly wisdom? Why are you so quick to abandon the message of the gospel that which you have been saved? And so he's saying, you have, been, you have beginning to creep in that worldly wisdom. You know, they're all, it's all around you. I know it is. It's all around us. And so uh, we, we're called to, to reject that. But we can't help from being around it, right? We hear it all the time. It's on the television. It's in the workplace. It's everywhere. It's in the schools. Everywhere we hear this worldly wisdom going on. And so Paul here is telling us that... It is the message of the cross that grounds you. It is the message of the cross that saved you in the first place. The power of the cross of Christ is what saved you in the first place. And that is what will be the cure to your division. If everybody understands this message. And so he is setting that forth here in verse 18. But then starting in verse 19 and 20, he, he, he wants to prove this point to him. That this message of the, that God is opposed to human wisdom. Does everybody understand that? Do you, do you get that? That God, is, God and human wisdom are like oil and water? They just cannot go. He, is a, he has been opposed to that since day one. And so here Paul is going to show, he's going to go back in time into the Old Testament to prove that point. In verse 19 is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. And so what's going on here? Well, if you go back and read in, in that section of, of Isaiah, and, and if you read around and, and, and cross-reference over into Kings and, and getting the history of what's going on here, this is actually uh, speaking about a specific instance in the life of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Judah was going, uh, during this time, was about to be attacked by the Assyrians under King Sennacherib. And uh, many of uh, Hezekiah was the king at this time, and many of his advisors were telling him, oh, no, here's this huge army from the north coming down and about to attack us. And there's no way we can stop this. What do we need to do? And so his advisors began to advise him and say, hey, down to the south is this huge nation called Egypt. 
I know we used to be in there, but listen, let's let bygones be bygones, and we can go down there and make an alliance with those Egyptians, and they can come up and help us to, to thwart this attack from these Assyrians. And so that's what the people are, are advising Hezekiah to do. But Isaiah comes onto the scene and says, wait a minute, Hezekiah, you need to trust the Lord. The Lord will deliver us. He is with us. He will deliver us from these Assyrians. And so since Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Judah, he listened to Isaiah and he, and he, and he, and he did that. He, he waited on the Lord. He did not go down to Egypt to make this pact. And so he put himself out there. Here's this puny nation of Judah about to go up against this huge army of Assyrians. And so what happens? Well, God shows up. And one night, he sends an angel to the Assyrian camp and slaughters 185,000 soldiers in one night. One angel did that. And so in the morning, they wake up, and something doesn't smell good. And so they look around, and there's 185,000 soldiers dead. And so Sennacherib turns around and tucks tail and runs back to Assyria. And so what, what is, why, is God, why is Paul here quoting that verse? Because God showed them that it was, his, it was His wisdom that won the day. It was Him that won the day. God did that in many times in the Old Testament. Whenever the, uh, the, the, His people would begin to doubt Him and begin to turn to their own understanding of things, He would show up in a mighty way and show them, no, I do win. I am the captain of the Lord's army. I will win the day. And He did it in a very spectacular way here. And so Paul is going back to show, to remind these these Corinthians that, and many of these people in this church were Jewish by nature. They had they had Jewish lineage, so they would have understood that. And so he goes back to prove that I have always been in the business of thwarting human wisdom, and I always do it. I always win the day. And he goes on further because whenever he brings that up, then that 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 brings up and leads to four rhetorical questions that he that he says there in verses twenty. He says, "Where is the one who is wise?" Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? So Paul here is, is quoting again from, uh, from Isaiah 19 where, where God was mocking the Egyptians here. You know, remember, remember back when Moses went to lead the Egyptians out of, uh, out of Egypt and he, he came in there and he did all these um, miracles with Aaron and throwing the staff down, it turned to a snake and then, and then Pharaoh brought in his magicians and they did something similar but... But he always thwarted them, right? He always overcame them. And so God here in Isaiah is again mocking those Egyptians, mocking that worldly wisdom. And he says, where is the one who is wise? Do you not have plenty of history in your past of whenever people tried to rise up against me and I stopped it? I cut it down. It, was, it, did, not, it did not win over me. So he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Who is a scribe? Well, that's the legal scholar in in. in in, uh, in Israel. They were the legal scholars, the ones who understood the law. And so he's saying, where is the, the one who is wise? Where is the people in the past who have risen up against me? Where is the scribe uh, who, who understands the law but did not understand that I was in the midst of working things out? Where is the debater of this age? This is probably talking more along the lines of what Paul was dealing with in Corinth. You know, Corinth had plenty of, of people there who loved to talk about philosophy love to talk about uh, the different uh, uh, types of philosophy and ideas that people come up with. And so he's saying, where are all these people at? You know, I've, we've had thousands and thousands of his, years of history of people rising up trying to figure things out on their own. Where are they at now? Are they still around? Did any of them win the day? And then so he answers his own question, he says in the last part, 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And of course the answer is yes. At every time it stuck its ugly head up, He made it look foolish. He knocked it down. He killed it. And so He's saying here that God has exposed, always exposed the foolishness of human wisdom. And He says... um, that it has never won today. It can never stand against the wisdom of God, and, and especially here as he's beginning to talk about the wisdom of the cross. And so Paul, addressing this issue of, of worldly wisdom versus human wisdom, has proven it. And so now that leads him into answering the last question that he asked. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In verse 21, he begins to answer his own question. For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so what does he say in there in verse 21? Only the mocked message of the cross can bring salvation. And they mocked the cross, did they not? They mocked Christ all throughout his ministry. Even his own disciples sort of mocked him. They didn't understand what he was talking about, that he was going to die. He was going to be in the grave. They didn't understand that. And so especially as, the, as he was actually being crucified on the cross itself, uh, the people standing below him were mocking him. The soldiers were mocking him. But what he is saying here is that in the wisdom of God, since the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That has been the message of what we preach since then, right? The cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, that is what God uses to, uh, to, to save those who believe. And so how do people respond to that? How do people respond when we preach the message of Christ crucified? You have three different types of people here. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews here. What did the Jews do every time Christ was, was working, through, working on, on earth and, and doing his ministry? They asked him for a sign. Several times we see that in the Gospels. He asked him for a sign. And so actually one of the last times they asked him, what did he tell them? He said, I will give you no sign except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days. I will also be in the belly of the earth for three days. And so, he gave, and, and so why did he give them that sign? That was, they were looking for a sign of power. That's what they thought would impress them. They had this idea of a Messiah who was going to come down to earth and have great power and overthrow all of their enemies and set Israel up as a kingdom, uh, a physical kingdom on earth. And so that's what they were looking for. That's why they were always asking for signs because they wanted to check out, is this guy powerful enough to do this? And so he said, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. Of course, they didn't get that. But that is the power of God the actual crucifixion of Christ Himself, the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins is what gives us that sign of power. And he says, in Greeks, seek wisdom. Again, these Greek philosophers who were, who were going through and talking about all the different ways that we can see, uh, see what's going on in life. If you want to flip back to Acts 17 real quick, or you don't have to, I'll read it for you. We'll see... An episode of the Apostle Paul. Paul was in Athens. And he was at the Areopagus talking to them. And this is actually right before he went to Corinth. In verse 16, 
He says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they, they weren't interested in hearing the message of Christ. It was just something new. They hadn't heard this before. So anything new that came in was, was, was welcome. To, you were, you, they're not going to believe it. They're just going to throw it in the pot with everything else that all these other philosophers, these Epicurean philosophers, these Stoic philosophers. And so that's what Paul is saying here. The Greeks, they're not actually looking for specific truth. They just want to hear something, some wise words, some eloquent words of wisdom that Paul says he did not come to preach in. That's, what, that's all they did. That's all they were interested in is hearing these eloquent words. And so Paul is here saying that's what Greeks seek after. Jews seek after signs. They want to see power. They want to see God's power. They believe in God, and so they want to see Him show up with power. But the Greeks, they seek wisdom. They want to hear the greatest, the latest and greatest new teaching that's happening. But Paul says, I'm not giving any of that. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to give you a sign, and I'm not going to give you some words of eloquent wisdom. What will I give you? But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The world mocks the message of Christ, as I was speaking about earlier. When we speak about God the Father, we will not get any friction. But if we bring the message of the cross, if we're talking to people about Jesus, they begin to mock that. And we see in a couple of ways that we see that. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That word a stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, which where we get our word scandal. And so to them, this idea that, the, that, this, that this, this man died on the cross for our sins was a scandal. It was ridiculous. We see back in Isaiah uh, chapter 8, uh, Isaiah was prophesying about the coming Messiah and all throughout his book. But then in, in verse 18, or verse 14 and 15, he says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be, sh- they shall be snared and taken. And so we see he prophesies that that's actually going to happen to Jesus. And it did. The Jews stumbled all over that. When he came on the scene and said that he was God, what did they do? Did they say, oh yeah, here's our promised Messiah we've been praying for all these years? No, they began to immediately persecute him and were offended at him and because it was a stumbling block to them. It was a scandal to them that this guy, this timid guy who, who, was, who, did not, who, was, a, who was the son of a carpenter who was born under meager circumstances, there was no way that this guy could be our Messiah. There's no way this guy's going to deliver us from our bondage. And so they say there's no way this is going to happen. This is a scandal. And also, after he was crucified, it became an even further stumbling block to them because, as they were taught in Deuteronomy 21, 
Cursed is a man who is hanged on a tree. And so when Jesus was hung on that tree and crucified, they were there below him yelling, crucify him. This is not the man. This is not our Savior. This is not the Messiah. It can't be. He's hanging on a tree. He's cursed. This is a scandal. This is foolishness. So they mocked it. And the Gentiles as well mocked it. It's folly. It's foolishness to them. Again, that word Moriah. To the Gentiles, this man Jesus was a criminal. He was a criminal who was executed as such by the Romans, who hung between two thieves on a cross, the most despicable way for a person to be, to be executed. He was, he was, he was hung in a, on the trash heap of Jerusalem, the dump. And so there's no way that this guy could be the God who delivers us from sins. There's no way. It can't be that way. This is foolishness. And so they mocked the message as well. And so those are two types of people. Those are the two groups of people who we see mocking this message. The Jews, the chosen people of God, and the rest of the world. They mock the message of Christ. But, and here's where we are, and this is where we can praise God today. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The mocked message of Christ far exceeds any human wisdom and power. God calls two people out of these. God calls people out of these two groups. We, are, most of us, are probably not of Jewish heritage, and so we would be Gentiles. So we were called out of that group. And so he's saying here that the message of Christ crucified. It is through the power of God that He is drawing people out of those two camps, and He is and and. That word called, we've talked about that before. That is especially linked to the doctrine of election and predestination, where God the Father has chosen those whom He will save in eternity past. And then in the days whenever they're, uh, they're predestined to be called and, and actually saved, He calls them. The Holy Spirit, that's that internal call, that effectual call, where the Spirit of God goes in and does that heart surgery on us, takes that heart of stone out and gives us that heart of flesh. And so... We preach Christ crucified, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. How are you saved today? How were you saved? Because you had enough good sense to accept Jesus? Because you were born into the right family? Because you were fortunate enough to be born in a Christian nation? No. You were saved today through the power of God and the wisdom of God through the cross of Christ. Through the cross of Christ, through the crucifixion of God the Son. That is the reason that we are saved. That is on the basis that God calls us because when He calls us, were we halfway to Him? Had we begun that process of making our way to Him through enlightenment, through understanding, through having people share the gospel with us? No, we were running from Him. We were running in the other direction. We hated Him. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of that rebellion, He calls us, He grabs us, just as He did Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and He knocked him off his horse. He knocked us off our horse and blinded us and called us, changed us forever. Our eyes were opened, and we began to see Christ for who He was. And so then, and only then, do we begin to under, experience and understand the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because 
Could, could anybody else other than God come up with this plan to save us? No. And there's not a person in this room who would have came up with this plan to get us to heaven if it had been upon our own wisdom. There's no need for God to die. Can He just forgive us? Can He just grade us on a curve and look at us and see that we're doing the best that we can? And really, we're not that bad. No. God the Father knows the depravity of His creation, the depravity of, of humanity. And so it took in the wisdom of God and through the power of God to send His own Son to die on the cross, on that cross, the cross of Christ. And it's through His power and wisdom that we are called out of that darkness and into His glorious light. That is great news to us today, is it not? That's, that should be on the hearts of all of us each morning as we began to pray and ask God and thank Him for the many blessings that we've already experienced. That should be number one. We should be in the practice of thanking God regularly that He has called us out of darkness because I don't care if you were raised in the perfect home, in the perfect church, whatever. Apart from that call, you would be perishing today. You would still be perishing in your sins. And so we can rejoice in that fact today that God has called us out of darkness through the cross, the work of Christ upon the cross of His cross. And in verse 25 he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Of course, they still mock, the, they still mock this. They still look at this and say, That is foolishness. But the foolishness of God is wiser than anything man can ever come up with. The weakness of God is stronger than anything man can ever come up with. The church has been going, the New Testament church has been going for 2,000 years, and God's people have been going since day one. And so this little tiny religion that started really in Jerusalem has expanded throughout the whole world. How did it do that? Through the power of God. God is working through the death of His Son to expand the work of His Son to the elect people who He's called out of darkness. And so we see that that, that is happening. And so that should give us great hope that there is nothing that can thwart that. The message of Christ crucified is going forth throughout the world. And it's going forth in our lives. And so what are the implications as we know this today? I just want to cover just, just a few. And we're going to get out a couple of minutes earlier today. <laughs> First thing I want to talk about is evangelism. How does the cross of Christ impact our evangelism? Well, the first thing I think we can see from this text is that we understand that people all around us are perishing. They're perishing. They're dying. I tried to think of an illustration to try to point this out, and I, I come up with a lame one, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. If we can see this as one, the whole world as one big, huge Titanic disaster. Remember the Titanic? It sank, and not everybody died initially from the, from the sinking. People were in the water. And so that water was freezing cold, and of course you can't, your body can't sustain that type of temperature for very long. You go into hyperthermia and die. And so that's, what we, that's the way we should view the world. That's the way we should view ourselves in the world. We're in the ocean. We're up here in the North Atlantic. We've been pulled out of that because 
We were perishing in that cold, freezing water. And we could not have sustained but so long and we would die. We would sink to the utter depths and die. We're perishing. And so God has rescued us. Somebody threw us a life uh, a preserver and pulled us out of that cold water. Now we're in a lifeboat. But all around us there are people perishing. What are we doing with that? You remember the movie? You, you heard people screaming and, and people were trying to close their ears and say, I can't listen to that. Is that our mentality? Do we see the people around us? Do we, do we just, are we just so thankful that we're not in that water that we ignore those people around us that are perishing? That cannot be what's going on. The cross of Christ and the fact that these people are perishing around us should necessitate us and spur us on to go and throw that message to them. The message of salvation, the message of the cross... The fact that Christ has died on the cross for those sins. And we don't know, you know, we, we, those of us who are in the reform camp, we, we trip all over the doctrine of election. You know, how should I share the gospel? You know, forget about the doctrine of election when you're out there preaching the gospel. When you're sharing the gospel, that's not a part of the, the gospel message in the, sense, in the sense that you're supposed to go share that with the unbelievers. You're supposed to go tell them that they're dying. That's the first thing you have to tell them. Then you have to tell them how can they not how can they how can they save be saved from that dying? How can they be rescued from that perishing? There's only one way, and that is through the cross of Christ. And why why the cross of Christ? When you say that to them, what are you telling them? You're telling them that they're dying. And they're, I don't care what type of wisdom you come up with in this life, what somebody tells you about you know, grandma who, who, who did this, all these things for, for the church all these years, and that somehow has come down through the bloodline for two or three generations and made you right with God. None of that ha- is so. You have to let people know that you are perishing and that, that God the Father is a holy God and He is going to punish sin. And you must stand before Him one day in judgment. And as it stands right now, you are condemned. You are already condemned, the Bible says. So you have to share that message with them. You know, we were talking about that in Sunday school, and so that might not be the first thing you tell them, what we were talking about this morning, that you're on the road to hell, you know. But somehow or another, somewhere in the discussion, it needs to come to that. You have to get to that point, because if you just make friends with people in this life, and yet they die around you and perish, what good have you done? You have to get that message to them, because they're perishing. And so the message of the cross must be the center part of that message. It must be what drives that message. It can't be do this for the church, join that church, uh, get baptized, say the sinner's prayer, do this or do that. It must be repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe. That takes us to a second implication. uh, And that's mainly what I want to talk to right now is to unbelievers. I'll flip back to Acts chapter two. You know, if you're a, if you're a person here today and you you don't know whether you're perishing or not, or you don't you don't really know that Jesus is your Savior or not, or you just don't understand what the heck I've been talking about. You know, there were people like you in Jerusalem in the early days of the church. In Acts chapter two, verse thirty six. Uh, to set the context, Peter has begun to preach to these people in Jerusalem. Now, that, now, take into account, this is probably two or three months after the crucifixion. 
You know, so the people who were present during the crucifixion, who were standing at the foot of the cross yelling, crucify him, were probably still in town. Some of them are still there. And so Peter's beginning to preach to them. And he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized for every one of you, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day some 3,000 souls. And so you see, these are the people, the very people who had crucified Christ, who were still in town. He's telling them, this man that you crucified, he was the Christ. And so what makes the difference now? The Holy Spirit has begun to show up and begin to draw them out. And he's opened their eyes to it. And so they, they, he says they're cut to the heart. What does that mean? They're convicted. They feel the weight, the guilt of what they've done. And so he, he, they're crying out, what can we do now? Oh, no, we have messed up royally. We have crucified our own Savior. What can we do? And Peter has a simple message for them. Repent. Repent. And so if you are an unbeliever this morning, if you are someone here who do not know Jesus as your Savior, then that is the message for you this morning. Repent. Jesus hung on a tree to bear the sins of His people so that God could draw them out of that darkness. And so, whenever, what does He tell us to do in order to receive that? Repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. You were walking in the way of the world. I was walking in the way of the world. And God struck me with the enormity of my sin and He gave me the, he gave me the blessing and the gift of repentance. And so then I cried out to Him, What must I do, Lord? What must I do? Repent and be baptized. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Him who died on the cross who has provided that way for us who need reconciliation. And then the last group for us, God's people. What does this, ha- what is this implication of Christ's cross, the foolishness of the cross, what does this do for us? Well, this is, this is, diam- this is forever linked to our ability to mature in our faith. It's directly linked to the cross of Christ. Getting back to the context of what's going on here, great division in this church. Much division. Much heartache, much pain. And so he's bringing them to the, to the issue that will solve that for them. How do you view the cross of Christ? Why is that important for us as believers? After we've already been saved, why is it important for us to always see the cross of Christ as central in our life? Because what happened on that cross? We were forgiven. We were forgiven. And so 
The implications of that are huge in our relationships. If Christ forgave me a tremendous debt, how can I not forgive my brother a small debt? And so it's huge in our relationships. But it's also big and in, in, in linked to our worship as well. Whenever you see the wisdom of God and the power of God at work in the cross, then what happens to you in your, in your mind's eye with God? You see Him as all-glorious. He becomes so much bigger in your life than I think some Christians see Him. Some Christians, I think many of us have been guilty that God is just something that we, that, that we somebody we talk to occasionally, somebody we go, somebody's house we go to once a week, and that's about it. The reason it's like that, if that's the case, is because the cross of Christ is very small in our, in our mind. Because God the Father put His Son on that cross. And the world mocks that message. It mocks the foolishness of that message. But we know that that is the message. That is the power of God and the wisdom of God. John Newton, near the end of his life, said, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Is that what you think? Do you see that? Is that, what, is that? is that where your mind takes you? That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I want to close by reading 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of, who I, of whom I am the foremost. Can you say that with me today? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. If you see yourself that way, then your relationships will work, your marriage will work, our church will work, this community will look at us and see us as somebody who's crazy, they'll mock us. But they'll also see something going on over there that God will use to draw them to that. If we see that Christ Jesus has came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of all, I hope that's your heart today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word we thank you for the gift of christ and we thank you father for the cross of christ and and lord we know that that is the central point of our existence the christ the cross of christ father help us in our message to unbelievers father that we get that right that we see that, that getting that making ourselves right with you is not according to our wisdom, not according to saying the right thing or doing the right thing, 
but it is all of the work of Christ and what He has done on the cross for us. And I pray, Father, if there's someone here today who does not know You, that You will draw them to the cross because that is where their sins will be forgiven. We thank You, God, in advance for what You are doing. In Christ's name, amen.